14 is where we left off a few weeks back. We'll read these verses again. And I do want to go ahead and do a a review um, because we didn't even we weren't even able to finish this this text in our during our last study together, and so I want to uh, spend a few moments just to again remind you of what is taking place in the text, and then we'll move forward and, and Lord willing finish out this portion of the text this evening. Jude verse eleven we read, "Woe unto them." For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In, in verses 8 through 13, we find that this portion of Scripture makes up the fourth division of Jude's epistle, as we previously have mentioned. And we saw that there were warnings within the third division, and then woe is pronounced in this fourth division. And as I mentioned before, all of this, these, these warnings and woes, if you will, are pertaining to or referring to the men that are mentioned in verse 4. And those, these, these are those certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything that's mentioned from that point, verse 4 and and onward, is the judgments, the woes, and such, is in relation and referring or pertaining to these men as mentioned in verse 4. Verses 8 through 10, we find Jude describes these men who pervert God's grace as filthy dreamers, as those who defile the flesh, they despise dominion, and they speak evil of dignities. Within verse 11, Jude pronounced woe to those wicked men and provides three historical examples within the Scriptures to describe their wickedness and its progression. He mentions first the way of Cain, and we know that Cain rejected God's provision, approached God his own way, or attempted to. Then two was the error of Balaam. Balaam deceived God's people and tempted them to sin for his own selfish gain. And then third is the rebellion of Kor, Kor attempted to undermine God's authority, which resulted in his utter destruction. As we saw a few weeks back, Jude continues to pronounce woe in verses 12 and 13 upon these wicked men who have perverted God's grace. And he used five illustrations to expose both the error and the end of such wicked men. Verses 12 and 13, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So there are five descriptions or illustrations which Jude uses in defining or describing these wicked men. First, spots. They are blemishes. They disrespect God's church because he talks about how that they are blemishes in your feast, in those love feasts in which they would gather together. And we've seen an example of that in Scripture. Second was empty clouds. They lack substance and are without direction. Third is unfruitful trees, and then he says they are unfruitful. Four is wild waves in that they are unrestrained. And five, drifting stars in that they have no purpose. Now, we began a few weeks back examining uh, these five examples or illustrations as to Jude's reason and meaning for using these illustrations in describing the wicked men of verse 4. He began by spots in your feast of charity. Again, this is referring to how they disrespect God's church. Notice again verse 12. 
These are spots in your Feast of Charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. And so again, it's referring to that they are, they are undermining the purpose of this Feast of Love. They are coming in a selfish, greedy manner. They are only caring about themselves, as Paul described in 1 Corinthians concerning the Lord's table and how he rebuked the Corinthian church, if you recall, because they did not discern the Lord's body. Discerning the Lord's body is not talking about they were not remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's talking about they were not discerning of the Lord's body that was present among them, the body of Christ, as they gathered together and fellowship together and were to minister to one to, an, one to another. And so these, these feasts of charity were feasts which were, are commonly referred to today, as I've mentioned, as these love feasts, if you will, which were intended to be a gathering of the body of Christ in which the church would come together as one without distinction, embracing the identity they shared in Jesus Christ. And it was a reminder of the love and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and how that we are all equally one in him, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 33. So Paul again rebuked the church at Corinth because they were coming to this feast together, but they were doing so in their own little groups and they were not caring for those who were without and they did not minister to them as commanded. So then we saw, number two, the empty clouds. They were lacking substance. Verse 12 goes on to say, Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. The illustration of the clouds without water conveys three truths we saw, which we must consider. First, the emptiness of the clouds. Second, the empty promise that the cloud produces by virtue of its presence. And then third, the instability of the cloud as it is carried by the winds. And so Jude begins by speaking about the emptiness of the clouds. They are clouds without water. And as I shared with you several weeks back, a few weeks back, these clouds are empty in that they, they do not hold within them the life-giving source of water. And that they, they had this form in which they appeared to be substantive, but yet there was really no substance within them. And they also brought about false hope, if you will, because the, the illustration of a cloud with water, again, Palestine was a very dry, it is a very dry land. It's a very dry place. It's a desert place by large. And so what you'll find is that if a cloud were to, were to form in the sky and it looked as though it was going to produce rain, they are so de- all of us are dependent, but in Florida we have an excessive amount of rain often, but yet they are in a dry uh, region and therefore they are, they are looking to the, this rain as that which is providing uh, the necessary uh, water for allow them to produce crops and, to, and, and water that is needed just for the land in general and especially for the crop producing. And so there was a sense of, of um, hope or a, a sense of anticipation that these clouds would have produced in this environment, but yet what would happen in the illustration Jude is providing is that the wind would be coming along and they would just push the clouds right along without them ever producing any rain. So they were not filled with the water that's life-giving, but rather they were empty and they, were, they, they lacked substance. And Paul mentions this to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 5, he speaks about the perilous times and men shall be lovers of their own selves. And then he says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And so the form of godliness refers to the appearance of substance while denying the very power of, uh, of, of God. And so they would have this, this form as though there was something to this. Substance was present, but yet there was no power backing that which appeared to be. So it was, it was of course, Extremely disappointing, and it did not deliver as promised. Then they, the empty cloud or the empty promise the clouds produce, which again, clouds without water, 
So as I mentioned, that would have provided this anticipation that then it was a false hope. There was nothing that was present. I mentioned a few weeks back how that this can be seen in extreme examples, but it's not limited to extreme examples alone. For instance, when people, again, try to uh, use uh, the scriptures as though if you just make these claims, you manifest into existence things that you know you believe because you claim you have faith in this, or if you just give amount of money to this certain TV evangelist, how that all of a sudden, you know, you, God's going to see that, he's going to honor that, he's going to heal you from your disease and from your cancer or from your troubles or you know, if you give everything you have, then God's just going to multiply that in your, in your bank account. You're going to start getting all these checks and all this nonsense. And it, it's, it's all this form, this form without any real substance to it whatsoever. It's emptiness. And people cling to this nonsense. And they look to this as though this is some sense of, of hope. But it's a false hope. There's no power and no truth behind this. And so, obviously, it's not limited to such an extreme example as that of one's health or sickness or life or death. But as well, it can even be um, true in, in, in men who claim that if you do certain things, even within the church, then you know God's going to bless you. And if you don't, then God's going to curse you or God's going to punish you or he's going to judge you. And the reality of the matter is this, that as we've said so many times, that the, the truth is that we all are going to die. We all are going to suffer. And if we're following after Christ, we are going to identify in his sufferings. Life is not always going to be a, a bowl of cherries, so to speak. And it's not always going to be pleasant. There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems. And if Christ suffered, then why would we not suffer as well? The scripture makes very clear. But here's the beauty of it. For those who know Christ, this is the promise and this is the substance. This life is but a shadow of that which is to be and that which is to come. And there's a whole eternity that he awaits for us that is with the Lord in which there is no more suffering. There is no more sin. And there will be a clarity of understanding who God is and who Christ is as never experienced before or understood before. And so, you know, the, 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 these, these, these clouds that have uh, no, no promise in which they can, they, they can actually provide, uh, they're, they're empty clouds without water. But then it goes on and says carried about by winds. And so not only were they, were they empty, but they were driven by the present winds as they blew and so the clouds came, went as, as quickly as they would come, so they would go. And there was no stability that was there. And uh, Paul, of course, speaks to that in Ephesians 4, referring to the fact that we are not to be carried about by every wind of doctrine, but that God has provided uh, those within the church to teach his truth and to establish and root and ground so that we are not tossed about, so that we're not confused. And let me say this, just a side note here for a moment. There is a lot of confusion today within the world of of Christendom, so to speak, a lot of confusion within churches, a lot of confusion, and it comes from, again, a lack of being rooted and grounded in truth, and therefore something comes along and people just buy into it, or they believe that this sounds good, but there's no substance, there's no truth to it, and people are just tossed about back and forth and to and fro. I will say this to you again, um, we have a sure foundation in Jesus Christ. We have an anchor of the soul that is unchanging. And, and there's no reason for us to be confused or tossed about to and fro. And again, we should expect for there to be trouble. We should expect for the world to be wicked. Actually, Sunday morning, we're going to deal with this some de- to some degree, what Paul deals with in uh, Philippians chapter 3, when he speaks about that there are many that are the enemy, uh, enemies of the cross. That should not surprise us. Uh, the enemies of the cross are, are numerous. In fact, we will see Sunday morning that it's always been this way since the sin of, of man in the garden. The reality is 
that the enemies of the cross have always been the majority. Always. They have been and they will be. Believers have never been the majority. And they never will be the majority. Not in this lifetime. Not in this world. You say, well, what about in the past? We'll look at all this Sunday where I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but mentioning this, how that, that this mentality that exists. But the truth of the matter is that do we not remember the words of our Lord himself when he says that broad is, is, the, is the way and wide is the gate and many there be that go, in, that, that go in there at? He said, but few there be that narrow is the way that leadeth to life and few there be that find it. What is he saying? He's saying the wicked are a much larger majority than the righteous. And it's always been that way. And so we should not be confused about the instability of those about us we should not be uh confused about the uh the empty promises of those who are not rooted and grounded and those who just lie and wait to deceive as scripture mentions and so these clouds these wicked men who perverted the grace of god were as clouds which came and went without an anchor without stability and without any real substance and what appeared to be a promise of refreshing water resulted in nothing more than a false hope which left those under their influence dry and parched and desperately thirsty and yet without any relief. And then third, we move on tonight now to continue in this portion of the study, and that is in verse 12, the unfruitful trees. This is where we left off a few weeks back. He says in verse 12, the latter part, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Now there are four statements which Jude makes in this illustration of the trees. First, their fruit withered. Second, they are without fruit. Third, they are twice dead. And fourth, they are plucked up. So such statements made by Jude obviously have significance in relation to the actions, the present condition, and future destruction of the wicked men to which the illustration pertains, and those wicked men are those mentioned in verse 4. So let's look, first of all, Jude says their fruit withereth. Trees whose fruit withereth. These were as trees in the autumn time in which any fruit that had been present now was withered, it was dried up, it was no good. From this statement, we can conclude that any works accomplished by these men, by these wicked men, produced rotten fruit. It was nothing that would last. It was nothing that would, that would be sustained. Jesus spoke of such in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew seven fifteen through 18 he said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So here he is identifying that there are those who are false prophets, there are those who come in sheep's clothing, but yet they are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are those, as Paul referred to them, who come as... uh, as angels are ministers of righteousness or an angel of light as, as Satan himself, and these are his, his, his uh, own uh, demons, therefore, and devils are, are ministers of, uh, appear as ministers of righteousness or make themselves to be the apostles of Christ, the Scripture says. And so the point being, they, are, they, they have this appearance again, but there's no substance. And what they produce is rotten. What they produce is not, it will not sustain. It will not last. It's just going to wither away. And that's what's being referenced here. Jesus also referred to the withered plant in Mark's gospel in the parable of the seed and the sower. In Mark 4, 5, and 6, he said, And some seed fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. 
But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Now notice, the emphasis here is, as soon as it was planted, it seemed to spring up faster than that which would have lasted. And the reason it sprung up so quickly is because there was no depth to it whatsoever, and there was no root to sustain even that apparent growth that looked as though it would produce fruit and looked as though it would be good. As a matter of fact, if you were to compare the good soil with that of the of the stony soil and that which in which sprung up quickly but yet did not take root, you would think by the outward appearance that this was going to be productive, that this plant here was the one that came up the fastest, it is the greenest, it is the best, and yet what you would find out as soon as a little heat came along, as soon as there was a little bit of heat that, that bore upon the plant, that it would wither up and die because there was no root to sustain that which was apparent. You've seen this happen. You've seen this happen in churches. People come in and you look and you think it's going to be so promising that they are going to, to be servants of the Lord and they're going to be engaged and involved and it, and, or someone comes in and claims that they've just been saved and, some, and, and, and they're on fire, if you will, for God, so it appears. But yet as soon as a little heat comes, they're gone. As soon as there's a little trouble, they are out of there. As soon as things aren't as they expect them to be or want them to be, it's like they just disappear. And uh, and, and so it is within, within this example. He's saying that there's no root. There's nothing to sustain them. Listen, um, for the child of God, I mentioned a moment ago, our anchor is Christ. Our foundation is Christ. We are grafted into the vine. We are the branch. He is the vine. And whatever is produced in and through our lives, it's not because we are gung-ho and passionate and zealous. It's because God is faithful, and we are grafted in he who is producing in us. As John 15 declares, Romans 11 teaches us as well. And so we, are, we, we find that, these, that these, the seed that fell on the stony ground, it, it had not much earth and there was nothing for it to take root in and, other than just a very shallow existence. And then it sprung up because that's the only way it could grow. It could not grow in depth, so it obviously grew in height and outwardly. But it could not be sustained because it had no depth of root. We, again, are to be rooted and grounded, that we not be tossed about, that we not, be, that we not wither, of course, otherwise we would as well. So the point is the false prophets do bear fruit, but it's bad fruit, because the source from which it comes is corrupt. Due to the rotten nature of the fruit, it does not last. It's not saying that they have no form of godliness. It's saying the form has no substance, and that it cannot last. It's not going to be sustained. Then he goes on to say they are without fruit. Now, this sounds contradictory in a sense because first it says their fruit withered. Now it says they are without fruit. Well, this is a statement concerning the present condition of these wicked men. They as a tree that was incapable, they, they are as trees which are incapable of bearing fruit. There's no good thing which can come from them. They appear to be capable of bearing good fruit, as we mentioned, yet they are barren. Like the clouds within the previous example, these trees uh, appear to have the promise of fruitfulness, a promise of, of being productive, Yet they are useless, they are unfruitful, and they are unproductive. Jesus also spoke of the unfruitful in the parable of the seed and the sower in Mark 4, 7. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no fruit. So again, in that parable of the seed and sower, there were those that were among the thorns, but the, they sprung up, they, had, they, they were able to get rooted and grounded more so than that on stony ground, but yet there was all this clutter in their lives that just choked them out. It choked the word out because of all the, the bad that was already present the seed itself could not take root and exist because of the ground was already occupied. 
It was already occupied with the thorns and the thistles and the, the unproductive and, and that which was of the curse. Then he goes on to say they are twice dead. Now this is an interesting statement. It's believed that this reference is in relation to both the barrenness of the tree and the absence of life within the tree itself. In other words, the tree not only is unable to bear fruit, but it also is dead and withering away from within itself. And so here you have a tree, for instance, that it once was alive in the sense of it's there, it's present, but yet there's no life-sustaining substance within it, so it's going to just wither out itself. Not only will it not bear fruit, it cannot even survive itself. It cannot exist on its own. Might I remind you that there is no possibility for men to exist on their own apart from Jesus Christ. In a spiritual sense, I'm talking about. I've said this to you many times, and I think it's worthy of mentioning again. One will either be born twice and die once, or one will be born once and die twice. So either you will be born again and experience only one death, the physical death, but you have eternal life, or you will not be born again. You'll be born once in a physical birth, but you'll die a physical death and also a spiritual eternal death. Revelation 20, 12 through 15 speaks to this. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whoever's not born again, who's not had a second birth, is going to have a second death. Then he goes on to number four. He says they are plucked up by the roots. Once again, we see the progression of the destruction of these useless and unfruitful trees. A tree that is dried up will often be pulled up by the roots and then cast into a fire to be burned. And this is exactly that of which the Gospels refer to concerning the wicked. In Matthew 15, 10 through 13, we find the Scripture says, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, speaking of Christ, of course, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard the saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. So he's saying if, if God did not plant, then it's going to be rooted up. The scripture further declares that those who are not of God and therefore unfruitful are cast into the fire. Matthew 3.10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Notice what every tree that bringeth not good fruit. It doesn't say no fruit, no good fruit. Matthew 7, 18 through 20. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So what kind of tree brings forth good fruit? A good tree. Now here's my question. Who is good? Jesus. That's it. So if we are not in him, then we are not bringing forth any good fruit. That's the point. But if we are in him, then it's only good fruit that's being born. Only good fruit that's being produced. And he says, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. 
Listen, I, I understand that we cannot see literally inside a person's heart. And I understand that there are times that believers can live in such a manner or act in a manner, I should say. Not live, but act in a manner that would definitely not portray that of, of a life of a follower of Jesus Christ. I've been there. You've done that too. There's been moments without certain and without, uh, without um, there have certainly been times that we have acted in a manner in which it did not demonstrate at all the life of one who's following Jesus Christ. We've all been there. So, I'm fully aware and concede to the fact that there are moments you could look at my life and say, how could he be a believer? Again, I remind you, all you have to be is, you spend about 10 minutes on 200, and that can definitely cause you to act in a way that isn't very (laughs) Christ-honoring. Trying to cross 200 can get you there. But the reality is that there are times that our lives do not reflect that of Christ. There are moments without question. So I'm aware of that. And we cannot literally see in someone's heart to know that they are following after Christ, knowing they've been uh, converted. We, can, we cannot look in, literally into someone's life and know that with absolute certainty that that's the case. But let me tell you what the Scriptures do teach us. You'll know them by the fruits. That which is bringing forth good fruit is only because God is working in them His goodness, His righteousness, that of Christ. And those that, are, that bring forth bad fruit, and look, good and bad fruit does not mean involved in ministry. It does not mean that you, know, you preach and do a good job at it, or you sing and you have a great voice, or you only sing songs that are, are, are those that would glorify God. No, we're talking about one's life, daily living, what is being produced through them. So this isn't talking about some performance where we put on some show of fruit. No, it's talking about the fruit that is organically being produced through one's life because they are in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Simon Peter wrote in a similar manner concerning those who perverted God's grace as a license to sin, as did Jews. In 2 Peter 2, 12-13, and then 17-19, we read, But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds they are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For they that, when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought Peter is saying exactly what Jude is saying. Jude is saying exactly what Peter said. Notice even the similarities with the clouds and how they feasted with them, blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, feasting with you. They promised them liberty. They themselves are the servants of corruption. Notice how he says, here's where men are drawn away, though, in verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. You know why men are. You know why people are misled doctrinally? Because they are living in the flesh and not in the spirit. And things that appeal to their flesh, they are, they are attracted to those things. 
So Peter and Jude both conclude that these men are going to perish in their own corruption. They're going to be consumed by their own wickedness. Might I remind you that that's where every one of us would be but for the grace of God. Again, we don't produce good fruit because we're good. Good fruit is produced through us because God is good and Christ in whom we are rooted and grafted is good. These men will continue in verse 13, Lord willing, on next week as he continues to give this example, as we've mentioned, of these who are spots, empty clouds, unfruitful trees. And then he goes on to speak of wild waves and drifting stones. Lord willing, we'll continue in our study of verse 13 on next week. But let's be mindful of these. And again, understand something. Every single illustration, example, historical account that is used in this epistle, every single one of them is pointing us back to verse 4. Turning those turn the grace of God into freedom to the wicked. And doing so, they are denying the Lord God. They are denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Wicked men. And you know them by their fruits. You know them by their fruits. It becomes very evident who these people are. Let's be mindful of that. And let's be rooted and grounded in Christ. Again, I remind you of the tremendous importance, necessity, for us to be rooted and grounded in Christ, resting alone in His sufficiency and not allowing anything that comes along the way to distract us from He who has called us into this gospel. Let us bow in prayer. Father, thank You again.